I'm sorry. I could not resist calling the sermon today Unchained Melody. Now, I realize that for some of you that means absolutely nothing, calling it Unchained Melody. And for then all of you, it makes me hopelessly dated in this reference. But I want you to know that I'm joyfully, hopelessly dated as I say this. Uh, If you don't know the song Unchained Medley, you can go home and you can listen to it and you'll laugh. So if you're a kid and you go home and you've not heard that song before, you're going to laugh and you're going to go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that you would still reference this song. But in your laughter, realize it was one of the most popular songs of the 20th century, and it's covered by an incredible amount of people because it was that significant of a song. Apparently, it was first made popular, not first written, but first made popular in a movie called Unchained about a man who was in prison and pining for his family even while he was in prison. By the way, if you go home and listen to it, listen to the Righteous Brothers version, 1965. That's the uh, version that is probably the most popular. But joy, the unchained melody, I think captures much of the spirit of this letter. As Paul writes this letter, he is chained. The word that we have here says imprisoned. But he is a man who is chained as he writes, but his joy is unchained. It is unconstrained. Now, years after Philippians was written, Paul would write another letter to his friend and colleague and co-laborer Timothy. And of course, this letter that we have to the Philippians here is from Paul, probably with Timothy writing this down for him at the time, visiting him in prison and writing this uh, physically on his behalf as Paul would dictate it to him. But Paul would write in another imprisonment to Timothy, and he would write, I am bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I'm bound, but the word of God is not bound. And in Philippians, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not bound. I'm in chains, the gospel's not in chains. It is out and going and doing its work. And not only is the word of God not bound, not only is the gospel of Jesus Christ not bound, but neither is joy. Joy is also unchained. We want to see throughout the next couple of weeks, how can that be the case? How can it be the case that you can find yourself in a situation like this and and call yourself joyful at exactly the same time? Where does that kind of joy come through? Now, as I thought about this and in preparation to it, I think that we have a very interesting juxtaposition of the book of Ruth and the book of Philippians as we come now to look at Philippians. And I mean that in this regard. In Ruth, we saw, as the book opened up and and then certainly as it continued, we saw two deep, uh, if you want to call them emotions, feelings, 
dispositions of the heart. We saw bitterness and we saw joy in the book of Ruth. And we saw those two things clearly connected to the circumstances which the people were enduring or enjoying in the midst of the book. In other words, we saw the bitterness that was connected with loss, with death, and with poverty. And we saw the joy in that book that is connected to the return to the homeland, to God's provision, to the harvest, and then finally to the redemption of the land and of the name and the redemption of uh, a child that is put in your arms. So we saw bitterness and joy that are closely connected to and dependent upon the circumstances. And we want to recognize that. We want to see the importance of that and we want to uphold that reality. It is good to understand that those things can be and are connected to circumstances. However, in contrast, when we look at the book of Philippians, what we have is a single man with no wife to comfort him, no children, no grandchildren who are coming for a visit, being able to be held in his arms during his time in prison. We have a single man in a Roman prison writing with joy, which means one of two things. Either he's delusional or something else is going on. And of course, I'm going to say that something else is going on. But one might expect that as the Philippians, and uh, we'll get to this in just a moment, but as they send a, a note and send a gift to Paul in prison, maybe what Paul would respond to them is, don't call me Paul, call me Mara. Call me bitterness. I thought that the gospel would flow all around the world. I thought that God had called me as an apostle to the Gentiles and I would be able to go to various places. But what do I have? I have nothing in my hands. In fact, the only thing I have in my hands are these chains. I went away full, full of mission, full of expectation. And I've come now to this place of imprisonment. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm taking Naomi and putting her into Paul and his circumstances here and the way she reacts. And, and so here's my point. He doesn't say that, right? So he's got something, a joy, that is not dependent upon these particular circumstances. So let me say this. Circumstances matter. And it is appropriate to respond to circumstances as they are, good or bad or difficult or something else. Not to do so is less than human. It is the inability to distinguish between good and bad and evil and blessing. Circumstances matter. But Paul has learned that there is a joy that transcends present circumstances. There's a song in the heart, in the mind, in the, in the gut, in the entrails, if you look at some of the wording here. In the entrails, there's, there's a joy 
that cannot be suppressed. That joy is an unchained melody. But lest we get off to the wrong foot, and here you got to recognize we're doing a little bit of an introduction to Philippians as we look at this first section, we have to appreciate that joy as a thing in and of itself is not for Paul his ultimate, his uppermost goal that he is pursuing. His question isn't, if we can put it in our language, how can I get the most out of life? How can I be as joyful as I possibly can be? Now, that may be in there. There may be some element of that, but it's not primary. It's at least secondary. For Paul, everything in his life and everything in this letter is enveloped in Jesus Christ, does not exist apart from Jesus Christ, and certainly does not exist with joy apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. The Philippians are saints in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace flow from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source of everything for Paul, but at the exact same time that Jesus is the source, Jesus is also the object. He's the beginning, and he is the end as well. And I could look at Philippians 1, but Philippians 3.14, a verse that many of you know, says this as well as any text in Scripture. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on for an upward call. Now, one might say, brother, you already have a call. You not only have your initial call, where the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ met you on the road to Damascus, you have this Macedonian call. If anybody has a call, you, brother, have a call. To which Paul would respond, I'm continuing to press on for that which I had here on this life, and I'm pressing on for it for an upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the object. And Jesus is the object, if you want to put it this way, of all of the prepositions that are in this book. In Jesus, of Jesus, for Jesus, to Jesus, unto Jesus, through Jesus, Jesus, all by Jesus Christ. You can see it easily in the English as you look through it. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is transcendent. He is transcendent over space and over time, and over circumstances. And because he transcends, then joy can transcend for us as well. You cannot bind Jesus Christ. He is unchained. You can nail him to a cross. You can kill him. You can take him down from the cross. You can put him in a tomb. You can put a rock in front of the tomb. You can seal the stone against the tomb. You can set a guard on the outside of it and surely say he's bound. And the resurrection and the ascension to the right hand of God the Father say he is, in fact, unbound. 
and therefore the joy that comes with him is unbounded. Today in particular, we see this in the opening section of what we've got here before us today. This is a typical opening for Paul. It includes thanksgiving and supplication on behalf of this church. Verses 3 through 8 are the section of thanksgiving, and his petitions for them are in verses 9 through 11. And even as we flow through this book, a little bit later in another section that you know well that we'll probably get to next summer, we see for Paul that if you want to experience joy, prayer of thanksgiving and prayer of petition are in fact indispensable to that, and that's where we start here. And this first section, I think, allows us an opportunity to see that while joy is in Jesus, that we can, in fact, must be and can be more specific than simply saying, be joyful in Jesus, or your joy is found in Jesus. And so what I want to do here is allow Paul to kind of walk us through, and I'll do it in summary form, this opening prayer and to see four elements, four expressions of joy in Christ. And the reason that I think that's valuable, and I, I, I think one of the reasons that Paul does it here, is to enumerate a little bit, to say, where does the joy come from? It's one thing to say, be joyful in Jesus, but what are the, what are the components of that? How do you know if that's taking place, and how might you seek it out? to find this joy. So I'm going to follow the order that's in the text today as these things are given to us. First, joy in Christ in partnership. Partnership stands out throughout this letter and it stands out in this opening section as well. The occasion for this letter, the reason that this letter is written is to express thankfulness. It is a thank you note. It is a thank you note of friendship for the partnership that exists between Paul and this church. Now, if you're familiar with this, years ago we preached through the book of Acts, but Paul had established the church in Philippi, this city in Greece, some 10 to 12 years before this letter was written. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16, as Luke records for us the establishment of this particular church in what he calls a leading city of Macedonia. It's one of the important cities in that place, and Paul has gone there in response to the aforementioned call, the Macedonian call, come over and help us. And as just one reminder from Acts chapter 16, you probably recall that during that time, Paul and Silas were arrested. They were put into prison while they were there. And then finally, at the end of the story, they are asked to leave the city. Luke, who was part of the team, the traveling companions at this point, remains in Philippi in order to strengthen that particular young church. And in the intervening years, that is in the 10 to 12 years between the founding of the church and the writing of this letter, Paul has gone back and forth, traveled through Philippi any number of times. And as he has done that, the Philippians have regularly supported Paul 
by contributing financially to his needs or to needs that they heard about through Paul. So, for example, the poverty of the church in Jerusalem, the Philippians are anxious to be able to contribute to the relief of that poverty and effort that Paul had took upon himself. So they were, this church, from the start, not merely recipients of the gospel, recipients of the ministry of Paul, but almost from the moment, from the initial days of their conversion, what they were was partners with Paul in the ministry. They didn't think to themselves, hey, we all have to be like Paul. We have to do what Paul does. They recognized the uniqueness of Paul, the calling that had been given to him. But immediately they begin to ask themselves, what can we do? What can we do to participate in this? It wasn't just that they had similar interests with Paul or in the same stage of life. The partnership was a mutual participation a mutual engagement in what we can call, and I'll comment more on this phrase next week because it comes from the next section. They had a partnership in the advance of the gospel. That's what they wanted to see take place together. That's what they were partners in. How do we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ? The message of his kingship, the message of his salvation that comes out into the world, the message of his patience, and mercy and call to repent and believe in the good news. There's joy in partnership in the gospel ministry. Let me personalize this. I miss Tommy. I, I, I don't just miss Tommy because we had the same interests, uh, that we were at the same stage of life. Tommy and I are incredibly different people. We're at a completely different stage of life. Almost everything we like is different from one another. I miss Tommy because of his partnership in the gospel ministry. I miss a partner in the ministry. My, uh, Lauren uh, said to me, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, we were having the Lord's Supper, and she said, it was so weird to see you up there by yourself. You didn't have your partner. Now, that's my partner saying I didn't have a partner. Understood. There's joy in partnership in the ministry. When you're linking with other people as part of the advance of the gospel, there is joy to be found there. Next, there's joy in completion. For reasons that are mysterious to me, I've had a very frustrating week. It is one of those weeks, or it has been one of those weeks, where I can't finish things. I try to finish them. I try to get low on the, in the, the inbox and cut them down, and then a bunch more come in. I try to bring a project to completion, and I find, no, 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 it needs revision. It needs editing. I have to go back to that thing again. It has been a frustrating week of things not getting done or something else coming up that needed to get done. Sometimes in the life of the gospel ministry and sometimes just in life itself, you find yourself spinning your wheels and not advancing. 
not seeing the advance of the gospel ministry, not seeing the advance of the things that you'd like to get done in the name of Christ. And that is not joyful. That is not happy. That is frustrating. And the Philippians, the Philippians had given sacrificially. They were themselves experiencing opposition. They had sent a gift to Paul with Epaphroditus. They think, all is well, we've given sacrificially. We send it. And lo and behold, Epaphroditus gets sick along the way. The gift gets delayed. They wonder how Epaphroditus himself is. And Paul is in prison. And they had to wonder, as we would wonder as well, are we getting anywhere? Are we making any progress here? We're giving you a lot of money. We're giving you a lot of support. We're giving you a lot of friendship. We've prayed for you a lot over the years. Are we getting anywhere with the gospel? Because you seem to be stuck in prison. Just saying. And I am sure of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Few verses in Scripture are as comforting, as hopeful, and joyful to me as this one. Paul was joyful in the midst of this experience, in the midst of that present circumstance, because he knows the beginning and he knows the end. He's not just simply an optimist engaged in wishful thinking. He's a man convinced that the coming day of Christ Jesus and all that needs to be accomplished in and for that day, that the coming day of Christ Jesus is as sure as the resurrection of Christ Jesus. And he's confident in that day on behalf of the Philippians in particular. I am sure of this for you. I'm sure because Paul has seen their good works. He has seen their good works from the very beginning, and he's seen it over and over on up to this particular gift that has just been brought to him by Epaphroditus. He knows them. He has seen the good work that is in them, and he can say to them, brothers and sisters, be confident. He who, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Sometimes it is easier for us to see that in somebody else's life than it is in our own. Sometimes we have doubt about, doubts about ourselves. We kind of know ourselves. We know maybe things about ourselves, certainly things about ourselves that other people don't know, and we have doubts. And sometimes that's why it's necessary for someone like Paul to speak into our lives and say, I have confidence for you because I've seen what you've been doing. I've seen the evidences of a true and lively faith at work in you from the beginning and up to this present moment. And I know it's going to be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It was started by him and it will end by him as well. And so Paul can enumerate he can tell them the reasons for his thankfulness, because they probably need to hear it. Here's a question for you. Do you ever get tired of yourself? Do you ever get tired of you? I do. I get sick of my sins, 
I get sick of the same old ones. I get tired of saying, as a man called to speak, I get tired of saying stupid things. Things that I would rather have not said the minute they are out of my mouth. I, have, I get tired of things that go on in my heart and my mind. I get tired of my lack of love. I get tired at what appears to be my lack of advance. Or, and I'm speaking here personally, but I could turn this corporately. There are things that I get tired of about me. And I get tired because I say, Lord, we've been doing this. We've been preaching this over and over. When are we going to see advancement? When are we going to see things take place? I get tired of it. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't, at the end of the day, depend on me. It, it depends on the one who began the work. Jesus himself, the triune God himself, and it is promised. And that gives me joy. It gives me joy to know at the end of the day, not only am I going to be sanctified, but you're going to be sanctified. All of the fruit that ought to come from the ministry of the word, all of the fruit that ought to come from us having the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our midst, Jesus is going to bring that to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, and that gives me joy. So partnership, and then completion, and next, joy in Christ in affection. These first two terms that we've talked about, Paul has used, and when we think of these terms, perhaps uh, we, perhaps the Philippians would think, well, those are very task-oriented terms, partnership and completion. They're the kind of terms you might hear tossed about in an office. We have to develop the right kinds of partnership so that we can complete the particular task that's been entrusted to us according to the deadline that's been given to us. We have to have strategic partnerships. But lest the Philippians or we misunderstand their work and their partnership as merely transactional, Paul switches to the language of love, verses 7 and 8 as examples. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the, and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of, of Christ Jesus. In my gut, in the innermost being, I yearn for you. Indeed, the Philippians were partners with Paul, and they were partners in imprisonment and defense and confirmation. But there is a partaking underneath of the partnership. There is a common partaking that provides the foundation for what becomes the partnership in the advance of the gospel. And the partaking is that they are fellow partakers of grace. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are children of the heavenly Father. And Paul finds that so stirring that he essentially takes an oath. You know, it's, it's hard to see affection, right? It is an intangible. It's especially an intangible if you're in prison 
and you don't have a lot of ways from prison to be able to show your affection. It's hard to demonstrate it. And so what Paul does oftentimes when he's in situations like this is he takes an oath and he calls God as witness as to what's going on in his heart. He says, as God is my witness, this is the affection that I have for you in Christ Jesus. I hold you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. Whom do you hold in your heart? Whom do you hold dearest in your heart? Now, that's obvious in one sense, right? You probably hold the people who are sitting right next to you dearest and closest in your heart. And it's fine. It's fine for us to have natural affections for various people, even within a church of our size, not a particularly big church, but to have particular aspects of affection. But is there a sense to which you hold in your heart an affection for this community of people? I hold you in my heart, Paul says. I hold all of you in my heart. Without such affection, joy shrivels up. In point of fact, what Paul is talking about here, he's testifying to his affection for them all, because there seems to have arisen in Philippi some infighting, some fragmentation that's taking place in the church, some level of disagreement or drifting apart between the members of the church, which leads then to this final element of joy in Christ that's in this passage, and that is the joy in Christ that is found in sanctification. Joy is found in growing in Jesus Christ regardless of what the circumstance actually is. Verses 9 through 11 constitute Paul's prayer for the growth of this church. And unsurprisingly, Given this particular concern that he has, having heard of some disunity, a concern that he has for unity, he talks about his own affection, and he prays this very first line of the prayer. He prays that their love may abound more and more. That, I will say for me, is a prayer that is almost constantly on my lips for myself personally, that my love would abound more and more, that the spirit of the living God would allow my love to increase, and that our love would abound more and more. The prayer continues from Paul for other good things as well, that with the Philippians' work, with the work and the completion of Jesus Christ under the glory of God, he also prays for knowledge and discernment, focus on the things that are important and purity and blamelessness and fruitfulness. Those are things that will come up in other places of the letter, so I won't go through all of them uh, in particular right now. But Paul finds his joy in their sanctification, in their growth. And we find joy in one another's sanctification as well, in our growth together in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one might be tempted to think, well, 
maybe there's not much joy in sanctification because if you're growing in holiness, by definition, that means you're saying no to certain things. But that's got the world upside down because what Paul is convinced of is that growth in Christ, regardless of the circumstances, brings joy to us now, and at the day of Christ Jesus, that will be questioned. Any way that we have grown in our love and our knowledge and our understanding and appreciation of things that are excellent in producing fruitfulness in our lives will stand at the day of Christ Jesus. So where do you go for joy? Where do you go for joy? Paul can't do circumstantial joy in prison. He can't go out to eat. He can't take a vacation. He can't go to a movie. He can't catch a ball game. He can't go to a concert. He can't turn on the TV. He can't check his friends' accounts. He can't play video games. He can't go fishing. He can't go to the threshing floor and enjoy the harvest that has just come in and have a nice meal and drink some nice wine and fall asleep on the threshing floor. In other words, he can't do the things circumstantially that gave Boaz, for example, joy. He's in prison. And the Philippians are worried about him. They're worried about his state as we would be if we can imagine. Take, I don't want to say a name but take the name of one of our missionaries and now put him in prison. Okay? In prison for the gospel. And we would worry about them. We would worry. We would be concerned for their joy. And, and Paul seems to say in response, it's true, it's true. My circumstances are not ideal. I am, in fact, in prison. I do, in fact, have chains on me. I don't exactly know how this will turn out. But, and I want to borrow words or just change words from Jesus a little bit here, but I have joy you do not know about. Remember when Jesus says, I have bread you don't know about. Paul could say the same thing. I have joy you don't know about. It's the joy of being in Jesus who is transcendent, and because he is transcendent, what that means is that he is with me. And where he is, joy is. Seems to be one of the things that Jesus is saying in John on the front of your bulletin. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one can take Paul's joy from him. The Romans can't take the joy from him because it is the possession that is given to him by the transcendent Lord Jesus Christ. And that joy is manifest in the partnership, in confidence, in completion. For Paul and his affection for others and in their growth. Joy in Jesus is an unchained melody. And it is a song that we too with Paul can sing. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, that there might be in us the hope and the joy 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not deny as your people that in life some circumstances are more pleasant than others. Some circumstances are awful and painful and yet help us and help those who are around us to recognize even in those moments the sweetness of Jesus Christ, the hope of the gospel, and the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we pray this in your great name. Amen.